Let us begin with prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank Thee that in Thy providence, Thy grace, mercy, and wisdom, Thou hast ordered all things from the beginning of the world. We thank Thee that Thou, who art the Lord, hast ordained that we should be Thy people, and in grace and mercy hast chosen us, hast separated us unto Thyself, and given us such promises in Jesus Christ. Give us the grace, therefore, with gratitude and thanksgiving day by day to serve thee with all our heart, mind, and being, to rejoice in thy word and in thy ways, to wait on thee knowing that thy wisdom governs all things and thy mercy. And so we come again to cast ourselves into thy hands who carest for us. Bless us by thy word and by thy spirit, and grant us thy strength, thy grace, thy peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture is Exodus 20, verses 24 through 26. And our subject, hierarchical work. Hierarchical work. Exodus 20, 24 through 26. An altar of earth. Thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings, and thy peace offerings, thy sheep, and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. This is a text with far-reaching and interesting implications. Among the other scripture verses related to it is Exodus 28:42, which says, And thou shalt make them, the priests, linen breeches to cover their nakedness, from the loins even to the thighs they shall reach. Now the significance of these and similar verses is that God prescribes every approach by man to himself. Man is not permitted by God to formulate his own way to God or to establish his own ideas of righteousness and justice as all too many men are prone to do. Only God's way is legitimate. Only what God says is justice is just. The world is full of men who regard themselves and are regarded by others as good men. But they have their own standard of justice, of righteousness, 
and it is not God's. Only God's way is legitimate because the world is not man's creation and man cannot impose his concepts of truth upon it. By him, by the Lord, were all things made and without him was not anything made that was made. As a result, all things serve him and they only serve us insofar as we are faithful to his word. We are here told that the altar could have no handiwork of man upon it. The atonement is set forth in the altar, and the atonement is exclusively and entirely God's work. Elsewhere, the sanctuary was full of man's controlled work, his controlled freedom to work. But because man makes no contribution to his own salvation, he could not touch the altar. The priest approached the altar with prescribed garments. No contribution of his own could go into his garb. To cover a man means he does God's work, not his own. And the priests were doing God's work in its entirety. Now this has a connection to us because we have the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers from the very time that God gave the law to Moses. We read in Exodus 19, verse 6, Before the giving of the law, and ye shall be a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. This sentence is cited again by St. Peter to apply to all Christians. We are a priesthood, a holy priesthood, a kingdom of priests. This is the doctrine of vocation or calling because we function as priests, prophets, and kings in our calling. Every legitimate calling is an area wherein the triple office functions. The goal is, as Zechariah 14, 20, and 21 declare, that all things will in time become holiness unto the Lord. Now the priestly garment was in particular designed to cover the sexual organs to emphasize the separation of biblical faith from the fertility cults. The fertility cults stressed man's potency in relationship to the gods and the universe. The pagan ritual in these cults presupposed, as Vanderloo said, and I quote, the potency of one's own body to ward off evil powers and awaken fruitful ones, unquote. In the fertility cults, man is the source of creative power. He is the self-conscious catalyst of creation who creates, who makes things new who not only works in the world to create, but in the intellectual and the religious realm, so that you have 
do-it-yourself ideas of justice, of law, philosophy, and of religion. The biblical doctrine, of course, is the antithesis of this. I referred to the triple office of all men in Christ, of priest, prophet, and king. As king, we rule all things under God. As prophet, we declare and apply the word of God to all things. And as priest, we dedicate all things to God. The pagan perspective throughout history from the earliest times to the present has seen man as a magician who by his own creative act transforms all things to suit his purposes. Alchemy was an example of this. But alchemy was a rather early and primitive example of it in Western culture. What we have today, of course, is the same kind of thing in genetic engineering. It's the modern form of alchemy. You actually have groups that call themselves by a name, experimental groups, in which the very word alchemy is now coming into usage. These people believe in magic, although they do not call it so. They believe it is a do-it-yourself universe in which man will be the creator. Man will create the man of the future by genetic engineering. He will create a new world which will be a totally man-made creation in which God is eliminated and man becomes his own creator. We have also the politics of magic. This is exactly what prevails in the world today. In the politics of magic, man bypasses God. He bypasses the need for regeneration, for God's law, for anything that is of God, and seeks to transform the world, time and history, on his own terms and in terms of his own planning. All that is required is men of goodwill, and intelligence, the philosopher kings. This was the Renaissance hope, as Dr. Ralph has pointed out in his book on the Renaissance. At that time, a new political philosophy came into focus. Key figures in this were Erasmus, Sir Thomas More, and Machiavelli. What these men did was to give open expression to something that had been under the surface for some time, namely, that the good society, or as Moore declared it, utopia, can be attained by man apart from God without any need for man to be changed and to be a new creation. There can be a new creation simply in terms of man's own will, man's determination to change all things and create a new society. From ancient times, the key principle of magic has been, as my will is, so shall it be. As my will is, so shall it be. 
sentence, which we have, of course, embedded in Masonic ritual, and which, of course, is the premise of modern politics. All we need is the right combination, the right legislation. And it is also the basic premise of original sin. Every man is his own God. But today we are ruled by magical politics, by magical science, education, economics, and religion. The religion of most of the churches is magical. Man's naked will comes to focus in this belief. And of course it is so much taken for granted that anyone who even ever so mildly challenges this belief in magical thinking is immediately a leper. He has broken the front of modern humanism. The belief that man by his own efforts political, economic, or what have you, will create paradise on earth, utopia. Man's naked will is to achieve this. Now it is interesting that this emphasis on man's naked will was carried to a logical conclusion by the ancient witches' covens. No less a scholar than Lynn T. White, Jr., who recently retired as the great medievalist at the University of California at Los Angeles, has called attention to the fact that the witches' covens of the late Middle Ages and early modern era were poisoners, they were blackmailers who were trying to shake down society as a kind of a mafia by threatening them with all kinds of dire things. And they were a clear-cut social evil and menace. And he said the, the fact that they were deluded in many of their beliefs makes them nonetheless evil. Their function, their goal was evil. Now, the emphasis in these covens was so great and still is in the relics of them that survive in our culture on man's naked will that man had to rid himself of the centuries of Christian teaching and even of clothes to give freedom to his own being and thereby exercise total human power. So in their magical rituals, there was ritual nakedness. Well, we see this kind of divesting of 20 centuries of Christianity and modern politics. They want to be naked of any moral influence. We see, by the way, the same psychology in the flashers or exhibitionists who haunt our city streets. But we're told in our text that the man who suffers, uh, serves God is covered because 
He knows that the source of power is not in himself, but of God. And as he puts on God's prescription in all his being, from his mind out, in his thinking and in his acting, he acknowledges that the source of power is not in himself, but the Lord. And it is the salvation of God which is power and strength so that in his life he sees the truth of St. Paul's words. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now with this in mind, let's glance for a moment or two at the ancient Greek hatred of work. The Greek thinkers, the philosophers, the would-be philosopher kings, believed that work belonged to slaves, not to free men. Lynn T. White says, and I quote, Any free man in ancient Greece who dirtied his hands with it, even in the most casual way, demeaned himself. Two friends of Plato built an apparatus to try to prove an abstruse problem of geometry. And Plato rebuked them. He said they were contaminating thought. Archimedes was ashamed of the machinery which he had built. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, said that inventions are the work of slaves. And that is true, by the way. As a matter of fact, most of the inventions that the Greeks get credit for were done by slaves who were sometimes then given the status of free men. It is an interesting fact that a lot of these slaves were Hebrew slaves who had no such prejudice against work. This is why in antiquity medicine was held in such low esteem. After all, in medicine you did work with your hands to a degree. For this reason, surgeons were regarded as the lowest kind of medical practitioners and surgery was relegated to the barber. Anything that dealt with manual labor was despised. Christendom came into the Western world with a different standard. St. Benedict began all things on a new premise. To labor is to pray. Later, the Puritans made labor in one's calling the prime moral necessity and the chief means of praising God, so that civilization now had a new foundation unique in history. One of the problems, by the way, in Asia and Africa is that revolution is indigenous to the culture because we've introduced Western-style education. 
once you take those peoples and bring them to Europe or England or the United States and educate them and they return they are totally useless in the overwhelming majority of cases for any actual physical work they are intellectuals now Work is for slaves. Work is for the lowest of the lower classes. And as a result, they have only one concern, to become philosopher kings and to create revolutions which will put them in the ascendancy. The modern university, of course, embodies this Greek ideal. In any university, any courses which have to do with preparation for a vocation will be despised because it is practical knowledge. The departments of mathematics hate above all any courses they must give in mathematics for engineers because that's practical. They prefer purely theoretical mathematics which has no relationship to reality. Mathematics which involves creating dream worlds in which totally imaginary mathematics prevails. The problem, of course, is when they try to take their dream worlds and force them onto reality. This is the Greek ideal. It is the perspective of the witches on power. It is magic. The covens, as White indicated, dealt in drugs and potions and poisons to extort protection money from the people. And, of course, the biblical word that is used that says, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, means poisoner. We're not told this very often by those who rant and rave about the attitude of Christendom in the past towards witches. A Jeffrey Burton Russell, a scholar who set out to debunk the whole of Christian history on this score, wound up overwhelmed by the evidence to concede that these cults were made up of people who were poisoners, who practiced cannibalism, human sacrifice and every other kind of evil. We have gone into the subject of hierarchies versus elites. The word hierarchy, as we have seen, means sacred rule, rule in terms of God's law, God's order. An elite is a self-styled superior group that separates itself from others and from responsibility to anyone except themselves and feels that it has been self-appointed to rule the world. The witches of old, the politicians of humanism, and man, the sinner, in all his days seeks to be an elite, separate and above all other men. A hierarchy rules under God and only in terms of his law word, his 
cannon or his rule, his yardstick, which is what canon means. Now clergymen too can be elitists. If in their ministry they call attention to and glorify themselves, and any man can be an elitist if he works apart from God and for his own glory. It is ironic to me in the limited contacts I have had with prisons and prison visitation that there is a higher, uh, an elitist premise at work in a prison. Because of the type of crime they commit, certain prisoners are looked down on, whereas others regard themselves as the elite. And surprisingly, most of the prisoners buy this. They see this elitism at work and they accept the elitist rule. The Old Testament priests were covered and under God. They were a hierarchy. They recognized that only God's rule must prevail. Elitism is a premise all over the world. Outside of Christ, it prevails. When I was working among the American Indians, it was very obvious that elitism prevailed there. The medicine men were elitists. They separated themselves from all others and imposed their sense of importance on the rest. In the term medicine man, according to Vanderloo, and I quote here, the term medicine is to be understood as power stuff in general, unquote. These men held to a private secret knowledge shared only with certain chosen ones. It was elitism. A godly doctor is not a medicine man. A godly doctor as a hierarchical sense. He feels that what he is doing is a ministry under God. And all work that is done under God and in terms of God's law order is sacred rule. It is hierarchical. What the world needs today so desperately is men with a sense of the hierarchical nature of work, work as sacred rule. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we give thanks unto thee that thou hast called us to work in Jesus Christ, to bring all things into captivity to him. And thou hast declared that our labor in Christ is never in vain. Make us joyful, therefore, in our calling and what we have been appointed to do, that we may serve thee all the days of our life in faithfulness and joy and in obedience.
Grant us this, we beseech thee, in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now about our lesson? I think it explains the, the witch trials of the 17th century very easily now. Because, I mean, I've never heard the background information that you gave. Uh, and it seems to me like the witch trials now all make sense. Because uh, the laws, most of the witch trials were all conducted by virtue of existing law. But I think most of the people may have been reacting to... Uh, uh, a long history of subversion and, and intimidation and harassment. Yes. While there were cases of injustices in the trials, the prevailing fact, as Dr. Burton and other scholars have determined, is that these groups were exercising a very evil influence in a committee in a community. If you have them practicing extortion on the threat of death, then certainly <laughs> you're going to have a great deal of community sentiment against them. We don't get too much knowledge about this sort of thing, and the medievalists who've done studies here are not uh, publicized in their works, because after all, it breaks with our image of the past. And as Napoleon said, history is a lie agreed upon. And by the way, neither Burton nor White uh, were Christians. They were agnostics, to the best of my knowledge. So their research was not colored by a Christian uh, concern. Yes? Rush, you said that uh, it was the uh, usual policy and nature of the elites <clears throat> to set themselves up and uh, rule over others. And uh, I think I've mentioned a couple of times the concept of uh, denying them the wherewithal to do that. In other words, uh, maybe even in the tax resistance uh, area. And I think you've uh, cautioned me about that and suggested that they don't need the money to be able to rule others, that they can do it, I guess, out of strict force. Could you uh, comment a little bit more on that? Yes. How, how to resist these people, given that they well, do it? Well, every attempt to overthrow an elite only produces another elite. The French Revolution is a classic example of that an even worse elite because you don't destroy elitism by killing off the elite but only by changing the premise in terms of which they operate and this can only be done by Christianizing a people and a culture by converting them any other method creates a new and a hungrier elite a more vicious one. So that every time an elite has been overthrown in uh, the last couple of centuries, or every time I can think of offhand, we've had a far worse situation develop. The French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the German Revolution, the Italian Revolution, all of these have led from one disaster to another. So the key is uh, to 
use education to fight them rather than uh, other forms of resistance. Christian education. You have the same problem, by the way, in Britain. You've had a revolution at the ballot boxes there. The old elite has been savagely penalized. For a time you had uh, income taxes that went well over 100% to wipe out the nobility and the wealthy. But the new elite has been uh, no better. Your Labour Party has been just as destructive and perhaps more so. This is what happens when any work that we do to change society is negation. We fall then into the political trap. We become heirs of Machiavelli and Sir Thomas More and Erasmus. We believe by changing things at the top in civil government or in economics, we're going to make a new man. Yes. I continue to have trouble with the word elite. Is that a word that has two meanings? Which would be contra... Well, the word elite has been used in recent years as though it represented the best, the cream. But the concept of the elite is a humanistic concept of people who in terms of humanistic standards set themselves above all others. For example, the social elite in New York was for a couple of generations the 400. Only if you qualified to get into that book were you the elite in New York. But what was the standard whereby you got into that book? It was a purely humanistic one. Now, that's what an elite means. Whether it's in politics or in education or anywhere else, it's in terms of humanistic standards. And no one would call, for example, uh, someone like, uh, let's say, Lester Roloff or Everett Sullivan or Mother Teresa an elite. But they have been trying to rule in terms of God's word. They represent a hierarchical principle. That's why I have trouble, because I wouldn't call them the elite, you see. So I'm at the other side of Webster. I even looked it up in his dictionary, and it just seems to me that the word elite implies something completely different to me. There ought to be definitionally to me a better word for this pretender than the word elite. Yes. Well, you mentioned dictionaries, and that's a very interesting point. If you take Noah Webster's Dictionary of 1828 and the current Webster's Dictionary, you see how humanism has radically altered the meaning of words so that we have given a humanistic content to a great many words. We've transferred words that once belonged to God, to man, and other words we've turned upside down.
to delete means very special. Yes, but in terms of what? I understand what you're saying. Yes. I wish we had a different word, though. <laughs> yes. Well, we have to go back to what was once a proper usage uh, rather than trying to create a new one. Yes, Bob, first of all. Is the of the elite and the upper class today are the same thing and the upper class being truly the upper class being those that are future oriented and God's law? Very good point. The concept of an upper class has shifted from those who rule well and ably to those who are the leisure class. So that we have a totally different concept of the upper class. When Dr. Banfield, uh, who I believe teaches sociology at uh, Harvard, dealt with uh, future-oriented versus present-oriented or past-oriented peoples, it was very obvious that most of our welfare recipients were, in terms of his analysis, present-oriented, and they were where they belonged. But it was also obvious in terms of his analysis, and he made it clear, too, that what we call the upper class is present-oriented, not work and future-oriented, and is a lower class in the making. So that uh, we have given a falsified perspective on uh, society by a very humanistic uh, perspective. Yes, John. Well, I was going to say, as all uh, heresies in theology begin with the redefinition of the person and work of Christ, so do all heresies in the concrete realm in the various disciplines begin with the redefinition of words and terms and reality. Mm -hmm. And one of, the, one of the deceptions in the whole elitist thing in politics is, is that a, a, a man can go out and mix with the common people and he's therefore going to understand their problems and go back to the legislature and pass the kinds of bills that will meet the needs of the <coughs> common people. When in reality, the elitist uh, mentality says, does what he thinks is best for the people, whether he like whether they like it or not, and that it and it wouldn't certainly do any good to inform them of this truth because they might not like to hear that kind of thing. Well, the very premise that politics should do things for the people is dangerous. It should do things in terms of what is just and righteous. And uh, this is the difference. Uh, today, politics is people-oriented instead of justice-oriented. Well, they, write, they don't write law anymore. They write purchase orders for blocks of votes. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? What John just said reminded me of uh, a command that's sometimes given in the Marine Corps. Your people will be happy. <laughs> <laughs> or like the sign in an office where there were a lot of layoffs recently that uh, examples of 
anyone with poor morale was going to be fired. <laughs> well, let us bow our heads now in prayer as we conclude. Now, Father, grant us thy peace and the power of thy spirit as we go forth, that we may be more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>